Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence. And today I have joining me a contributor for The Nation who just wrote one of their feature cover stories that you are definitely gonna learn a lot. I know I have already just looking this over. But this is Mr. Mustafa Bayoumi, who happens to also be a Brooklyn College professor. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Bayoumi. Thank you, Adrian. It's really great to be here. So I know you recently wrote the cover story for The Nation called Journey to Guantanamo, a week in America's notorious penal colony. A lot of us used to hear the term Guantanamo, we think of Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and all of the things that went on there. But it seems that when we say went, that's not necessarily accurate as there are still things that are going on there in terms of detaining people and how they're treating them. What exactly were you looking for when you went there? That's a really good question. I mean, I think in one way I was open to seeing whatever I was going to see down there. And in another way, I think what I was looking for was just what is the memory? What is the situation? What is the condition of Guantanamo Bay? I feel like it's now over 20 years since that penal colony has been operative in the war on terror. And it's almost been forgotten by the American public, even though there are still men who are detained down there. Some of whom are facing trial, some of whom have been cleared for release, and others who could, for all we know, be detained there forever without any trial whatsoever. And I think you're right. I think most Americans have forgotten about it. You know, for me, it conjures thoughts of a few good men, and it's something that I think of in the past as the past. But I'm guessing you found that definitely not to be accurate. What what did you find? Well, what I found was a military commission system that has been established and for which 10 men are currently in pretrial motion hearings. So they actually the trials themselves haven't begun for anybody who's down there. They're still mired in these pretrial motion hearings for eight years or more. And that is essentially as a way to protect the US government from revealing the fact that they had tortured many of these men. And that much of the evidence that they're trying to use against these men was obtained through coercive means that I think much of the world would consider torture. So maybe it's not a mistake that in some ways we are forgetting about Guantanamo. I mean, in the early days of the war on terror, we all knew all about it. It was it was part of the public relations campaign of Secretary of State Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense, I should say, Donald Rumsfeld and, and others. But when we get to it today, we see, I think, an attempt by the US government and by you know the institutions at large as a way of trying to just kind of foreclose what's going on down there, sort of keep it out of the public eye. Maybe, maybe we won't pay that much attention and we'll forget about all of the terrible things that in fact the United States government has done. Wow, that is, um, it's very upsetting. I wish I could say it's shocking, but I think we know with the history of the United States and what we have done uh, oftentimes under cover of darkness that it is something that almost seems to align with it. But you know, um, in your article, in your piece, it kind of reminds me of that um, off repeated quote that you had mentioned from Justice Robert H. Jackson, Chief Counsel for the US when it came to the Nuremberg trials in 1945. We must never forget that the record on which we judge these defendants today is the record on which history will judge us tomorrow. And as you noted, the Nuremberg trials lasted 10 months. And the fact is that, as you noted, you're having witnesses still facing these pretrial motion hearings for eight years. You know, one of the tenets of our democracy is this thought of, you know, justice delayed is justice denied. So, how is it that the US government continues to get away with this? Well, I mean, they can. I mean, in part because 
we're not paying any attention. Uh, you know, another part, who's gonna who's gonna fight for the rights of people who are detained at Guantanamo Bay? I mean, there are some people who are fighting valiantly and bravely uh, for them, and I, I I do want to recognize that. But at the same time, we have to understand the kind of political calculus that is made by a lot of people when it comes to something like Guantanamo Bay. I mean, we see with our new support justice coming in right now that she was pilloried from the right wing. Um, for writing amicus briefs for uh, people who are at Guantanamo in a way of preserving due process and constitutional liberties and constitutional rights. I mean, Guantanamo is in a way, uh, it stands for so many different things in our society. But really what it should stand for is uh, a recognition that the constitutionality and rule of law must prevail. Even, even, even for people that we don't wanna, uh, that well, some people will think are unpopular. It really undermines the system of democracy and the rule of law to have individuals continue to be detained and to be delayed any kind of sense of justice. And I know you had mentioned that people are fighting on behalf of those individuals, which is great. But what's the response they're getting from the US government in terms of how the government is justifying this? So my impression from talking to the attorneys who are involved in the military commissions, especially the defense attorneys, was that the military commissions were initially organized and devised by the government. And the government believed that they were going to be a kind of you know, quick, um, uh, 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 quick attempt at, at, at uh, basically convicting these men. And instead we had something else that comes up. And we have, we have a bunch of attorneys who are actually fighting for the constitution, for the rights of these men. And the defense attorneys in these um, uh, tribunals really should be commended for the work that they're doing. Absolutely, because it definitely seems that they are managing these cases that have been going on for years at a time. And as an attorney myself, I know how difficult it can be to try to litigate. And also you believe in representing your client and you want to see justice done. But to see it continually delayed, and I'm guessing there are a lot of excuses that are coming down the pike from the judges and everybody in the process. And the thing is, we know that this isn't normal. It's extremely problematic. And so as it concerns where we go next, where do you see this going? Do you think that the US government will continue to try to delay, delay, delay until all of these men die? Well, there are multiple tracks happening at the same time right now. So it's actually kind of difficult to predict, I think, what's gonna happen next. For one thing, we have a new courtroom being built in Guantanamo Bay so that they can actually have multiple trials happening at the same time. Trials that haven't yet advanced to the trial stage, as I say, but they're thinking that maybe next year, maybe the following year, there might be trials. You know, They've spent over $4 million to build a brand new courtroom that should be operational next year. At the same time, they're also spending about $124 million building new barracks for prison guards down at Guantanamo. So that would seem to indicate that they're really trying to institutionalize the place into an even more, giving it even more longevity. Yet on the other hand, we also have reports that the, that the prosecution and the defense counsels are engaged in many of these different trials in plea arrangements. And they're having these long form discussions about what would the plea arrangements be for their clients. So maybe there's also a way that they will transform Guantanamo Bay from being a place where people are held in indefinite detention to maybe more like a regular American kind of prison. So that's another option there. 
And the third option is that they'll find places to essentially repatriate the 36 men who are left there to this day. That'll be a difficult challenge. It's been always hard to find places to repatriate these men. And as they get older and as their health needs also increase, I think that'll become an even more difficult task. So I think it's not really clear exactly where it's going to go. But that's all the more reason why we should be paying much more closer attention to what is happening now. Absolutely, and it sounds like our tax dollars are being expended in ways that they could be, you know, they could be done used in a way that's more beneficial for our nation. Also, this would seem to raise some international concerns. Are there people speaking out on the international front? Well, we just passed the 20-year anniversary of Guantanamo earlier in January of this year, and there were all kinds of events globally calling for the closing of Guantanamo. You know, I think from the very beginning, the international human rights community, especially, has been just completely outraged by the existence of a place that the United States was trying to use as a way of excusing itself from its obligations to the Geneva Convention and to the American Constitution. And in many ways, the United States is still trying to use Guantanamo as a way of trying to evade responsibility for the torture that it engaged in. So I think there is a lot of pressure coming from different international organizations. But as we also know, the United States actually seems to be quite resilient to you know, succumbing to international pressure when it really when push comes to shove in many different examples in its own history. So I think that still remains to be seen. Absolutely, you know, bullies often get that that little holier than thou art, and we've seen the U.S. government continue perpetuate that on an international level. It's very, very sad, but largely it's the hypocrisy for me. But that's just me. So, in terms of what's next for you, because I know that you've been doing some just very riveting things. What can you tell the people they should be looking out for? Well, I'm still interested in thinking more about what Guantanamo Bay means for the United States. I want to think about it also as a historical site of American culture, as a contemporary site of American carceral culture, carceral realities, and also as a kind of site of literary production. There are all kinds of interesting books that have come out of Guantanamo. So I think my my interest in Guantanamo will 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 continue in this fashion. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And can you please tell our viewers where they can find more about you? Oh, sure. You can find more about me at my website. That's www.mousafabayoumi, mustafabayoumi.com. Thank you so much. That's Mustafa Bayoumi, the nation contributor and Brooklyn College professor. Thank you, Adrian. Welcome back to the conversation. It is Adrian Lawrence, and I know we have all been on the edge of hopefully escaping COVID, but it doesn't appear to be the reality as it now it is endemic, a natural and enduring part of our daily lives. But will the same be for monkeypox? We don't know, but we definitely have an expert joining us who has some insight. I want you to welcome in grassroots organizer and disaster equity advocate. That's Kristen Urquiza, co-founder of Marked by COVID. Thanks for joining us, Kristen. Thanks so much for having me on. Yes, so Kristen, this past weekend, the World Health Organization declared that monkeypox is a public health emergency on an international level of concern. Did this shock you? 
what the data is showing me didn't um, shock me much at all. But I think it is coming as a shock to most people uh, in the United States because we are not doing enough right now to keep ourselves protected. Why do you think that the United States isn't feeling this dire movement that the World Health Organization clearly recognizes is very much apparent and at our door? I mean, you would think that after having gone through the last two and a half years of COVID that we would be a little bit better on our game. And I think that's part of the issue is that we have allowed ourselves to politicize public health to the extent that we don't want to address what is happening right underneath our our noses currently, which is only going to make things worse for us. The good news is, is that there are things that we can be doing right now that are in our power to be doing to help get on top of this. Yeah, I would imagine there's plenty we can do, especially because we've been through various pandemics, if not just the one we're currently still in existence in. But also to see that monkeypox has risen to what I think there's about 16,000 cases now that have been detected around the globe in about 75 countries and territories. And there has only been about five deaths reported due to it, which all have occurred in Africa. But it does seem like it's something, especially what I've seen from the photos, is extremely painful. I wouldn't be surprised if there are long-term consequences or effects, but also something where we may not necessarily be prepared for it. Yet I do hear there's a vaccine out there. Kind of where where do things stand? Yes, um, the, we're so lucky in that there is a great vaccine um, and, and treatments available for um, handling monkeypox. We are not starting from zero like we were with COVID. So the difference with COVID is that it was a novel virus. This is something that has been around before we've studied. We understand how it moves. We understand what this virus looks like and we have treatments for it. That being said, we're not necessarily doing what we need to do to really get on top of things. And what I'm saying about specifically is that we need to be tracking this a lot closer in the data here in the United States. And we also need to be doing everything in our power to be deploying vaccines to targeted individuals, both here in the US as well as abroad. This cannot just be a US only response because this is happening across the globe. Oh, definitely agreed. Um, and it does seem to be on that larger level, especially with the US having so many resources available to it. It seems that there's no excuse for why not have more vaccines out there. And from what I've seen from the vaccine conversation is that a lot of efforts have been geared toward um, largely gay men. And that seems to have uh, a lot of problems tied to it in part because as we saw with the AIDS epidemic, this thought that it's only really impacting this one isolated community when that is not necessarily at all the case. And we don't want to start any kind of also health related homophobic rhetoric to advance. And we also don't want people not getting the care that they need or thinking that this doesn't impact them. So when it comes to a social justice perspective in terms of getting people the information that they need to figure out their health needs to avoid certain consequences, where are things? Um, This is a really important point that you are raising right now because we are not currently getting the information we need out to individuals who are high at risk, higher risk. So anyone can contract monkeypox. Um, However, we do are seeing it um, in men who sleep with men communities at a higher rate. 
And as a result, we need to be messaging to these folks on how to, what the risk is and how to remain safe. While still also um, responding and, um, you know, responding back and pushing back on the individuals, the institutions, um, the bad actors that are going to be homophobic. Homophobia exists whether or not there's monkeypox, and we should not be keeping information from um, these, you know, potentially at risk community just because of the fear of that. And I think there is a very narrow messaging window that we need to go down. And I think that first and foremost starts with ensuring that um, our local public health departments have the funding they need to work really closely with impacted communities to get the, the resources, the tests, the treatments down to those uh, communities right now. Being able to give people the access to the healthcare options and the information they need is so incredibly important. And so hopefully our government will step up more. But I guess in the meantime, what can people do on the ground when we're trying to raise awareness as well as get involved to hopefully prevent another global pandemic of epic proportions? I mean, there's a lot that each and every one of us can do. I think having these conversations is really important in keeping it alive that this is, these are decisions that seem to happen in a vacuum, but really, they really matter to people's lives. I think for the individual, continuing to monitor the situation, having conversations about it, but then also calling for funding to go to our public health departments so that they have the resources that they need to lead to provide us with the right information is, is essential. And we've seen and continue to see local public health departments limp on by whenever we need a lot more investment there. Yes, absolutely. I think we need an investment across the board. And especially, again, I'm big on the education element to think that it just impacts one community. That seems to be a lot of the messages here and just knowing that so many people are unprepared. But it also definitely seems from what I've read, at least on social media, even if just anecdotal, that there may not be enough members of the healthcare community who are fully informed. Mm-hmm. You know, I've read stories of people going to seek medical help and asking, hey, is this monkeypox? And people don't know. Or they deny that it is because maybe the individual isn't a man, and so on and so forth. And it really seems that there's not enough preparedness, particularly in communities that have lower access to resources and are more marginalized. So I guess what, go ahead. I was just going to say on that point, this is why it's really important that there's not only this focus on the local community level sort of access to information, but also for leadership to be coming from the White House. So there is no reason why there shouldn't be already a state of emergency declared. There should be resources going into a monkeypox coordinator. Uh, We're seeing um, the COVID response coordinator, um, Dr. Ja, responding to monkeypox. We need him focused 110% on COVID, and we need somebody else focused 100% on monkeypox. And the great news is, is we, the federal government, has the resources to be able to do that. Um, And I think it's important that we demand that our government and our elected officials use the full power of the federal government to make sure that we are ahead of the the game on this. And we, so far, we're not quite there yet. 
No, definitely not. But of course, you know, when our government doesn't provide universal health care, I guess they kind of don't really want to bring up so many health related issues. I guess I can get that. But I'd love to talk about your organization that you founded, March by COVID. What do you all do? So uh, Mark by COVID was born out of the previous pandemic um, with COVID-19 out of my own loss of my dad to the disease early on. But we've translated and transferred ourselves into really helping to suss out and get to the root of, of, of systemic issues within public health. Why are we still operating in a way that creates two Americas? One where some people get access access to concierge care and Paxlovid within 10 hours of being diagnosed. And another America where there are people who are being put in harm's way day in and day out without access to healthcare and other basic needs. And so I really think of ourselves at the intersection of racial justice and health justice. Yes, I would imagine a lot of it seems to be at that access of race, class, um, that you start to see essentially a lot of the overlapping elements when it comes to health justice related issues. And so also as it concerns the pandemic and people realizing that this is more of an endemic, you know, a natural and enduring aspect of our daily lives. Is that something that you also agree that you see it as that in terms of COVID? I mean, what I'm seeing right now is that we have public health and other institutions that have been woefully underfunded for a really long time. And as a result, these infectious diseases are getting the best of us. So one of the things that we're really focused on is making sure that these institutions are getting the resources that they need. So as any disease comes on to our radar, we're able to respond to it in a way that isn't so disruptive to our lives. And we have a long ways to go in order to make that happen. Yeah, it definitely seems that way. And it's so incredibly unfortunate given how much we have in the United States in terms of resources and all the things we can do with it to the betterment of the people who provide those resources. Yet it still seems that our leaders are bowing at at the at the statue of capitalism as opposed to <laughs> taking care of the people. But that's definitely a soapbox of mine. But I really, really do appreciate all the work that you do with Marked by COVID. And so if there are opportunities for people to support you or to get involved, where can they find more information? Yeah, visit our website at markedbycovid.com. There's a ton of resources on events, community meetings, places to meet other people who like you and I believe that these issues are real and that the power needs to be back in the hands of normal folks to make sure that we can live long and have all the opportunities to us that our constitution says we should have. Yes, that is something that I think we all can get behind. That whole uh, that whole notion that we all should be entitled to have at least opportunities at what uh, that whole life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness thing doesn't sound too bad right now. So hopefully there will be more of that. And I want to thank you so much for all the work that you do. That's grassroots organizer and disaster equity advocate Kristen Urquise. That is co-founder of Marked by COVID.